Today we are picking up in chapter 5 of the book of Esther. Let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that you love us. And Lord, we know that we love you because you first loved us. And I pray today that as we look at your word, as we consider this amazing story, that you would enlighten us, that you would instruct us, and Lord, that you would give us faith to follow you wherever you might lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. President Theodore Roosevelt was not a big fan of the galas and the balls that he often had to attend as president. And one of the things he didn't like about it was, you know, people would get all dressed up, but he just felt like people were phony. They'd come with their big smiles, but everybody just would, would always say the same thing, you know, the same greeting, you know, so good to see you, Mr. President, and that sort of thing. And so on one particular gala, when that was happening, everybody was coming up to him and saying basically the same thing. Um, President Roosevelt decided to do something that was kind of a bit outrageous. Convinced that no one was really listening to him anyway as they greeted him, he began to, uh, he began to greet the guests that would come up to him by saying this with a big smile on his face, I murdered my grandmother this morning. <laughs> and his guests would smile back and say things like, wonderful, lovely, keep up the good work. But there was one diplomat who was listening. And he leaned in and whispered in President Roosevelt's ear after he said that. He said, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think our Lord just loathes in his people is when he sees us just going through the motions. Just kind of saying the, what needs to be said. In fact, it was the Lord, he declared through the prophet Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's why the first commandment, the greatest commandment, the Lord says, is that we should love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That he wants us to be all in and he desires our all. He, he doesn't like it when, when he sees us just going through the motions. Well, for the last five years in our story, Esther has been sort of going through the motions. She's the Jewish orphaned girl who ends up being selected to be the queen in Persia which is modern-day Iran. At the time here in the book of Esther, Persia is the reigning empire over that part of the world. Esther has been the queen for five years, but she has no idea why. But then things suddenly change. When this wicked Persian leader by the name of Haman invokes a plan to annihilate all of the Jewish people from the kingdom of Persia. That would be about three million people that are going to be killed and it's going to take place in 11 months. 
The reason for this plan is that Haman is so mad at one particular Jewish man by the name of Mordecai, who just happens to be the cousin of Esther and the one that when she was orphaned, he took her in and raised her as his own daughter. Now, Mordecai also works for the king, but he doesn't have a prestigious role like Haman. He just is, you know, out there at the gates, and he's sort of like a judge, but he's kind of an unimportant guy. And Mordecai, because of his Jewish faith, refused to bow down and pay homage to Haman. And Haman, because he's so filled with prejudice and bitterness because his family has a long-standing hatred against the Jewish people, he seeks to not only get rid of Mordecai, but all of the Jews. He thinks all of the Jews in the whole kingdom are a nuisance and should be eradicated. And through persuasion and promises of bringing in great wealth to the kingdom, he gets the king to sign off on this idea. Well, Mordecai immediately sends message to Esther and tells her that you need to intervene. This is your purpose. It's clear to Mordecai, this is why you're the queen for such a time as this. You need to do something. And Esther responds by asking Mordecai to get all of the Jews in the kingdom to fast and pray for three days. And at the end of the three days, Esther is going to take a risk and see if she might be granted an audience with the king. Remember, the king and queen, they didn't live together. They didn't live in the same house, the same quarters. They didn't sleep in the same bed. It's not like they were having dinner every night. The only way that Esther could come into the king's presence is she had to be summoned. And we learned last time in chapter 4 that she hadn't been summoned in 30 days. If you just showed up in the king's presence when he hadn't summoned you, you could lose your head. But Esther is ready to take that risk. And that's where we left off in chapter five or chapter four. We pick up today in chapter five. And the title of the message today is Surprised by God. How many of you have ever been surprised by God? I think God loves to surprise us. And we're going to see in this story today, we're going to look at actually chapters 5 through 7, that the four main characters in this story all get surprised by God. Chapters 5 through 7 kind of read like a three-act play. And chapter 5 would be act 1, and we'll call it divine providence. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Now it happened on the third day, this is after the three days of prayer and fasting, that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. And so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that he had in his hand and then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. She's granted access into his presence. Let's pause there for a moment. Now, Isaiah the prophet wrote those famous words in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, where he said, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
And in that verse, we see three benefits of waiting on the Lord in prayer and fasting. The first is that our strength is renewed. You know, we might feel weak, even intimidated, but when we turn to the Lord and wait upon Him in prayer and fasting, something happens. Our strength in the Lord and our boldness is renewed, and we exchange our weakness for His strength. And we see that here in Esther. That the fear that we saw that she had in chapter 4 is replaced by a boldness. But it happens after these three days of prayer and fasting and waiting on the Lord. The second benefit that we see in that passage is that we gain a better perspective. The passage says that we will mount up with wings like eagles. And you guys know, eagles soar high. They see, they soar high high above the terrain, and eagles have incredible eyesight, they can see a fish down in a lake from miles away. Well, as we wait upon the Lord, we gain his perspective on the situations that we find ourselves in. And we will see that play out today in the life of Esther as she interacts with the king. The third benefit that we have of waiting on the Lord is that we will deepen our determination to persevere. The passage says that we will run and not be weary. We will walk and not faint. In other words, there's a greater resolve, a greater sense of confidence to take steps of faith. And again, we see that in the life of Esther. After these three days of prayer and fasting, she literally becomes a new woman. No longer going through the motions, she is ready to be surprised by God. So Esther goes to the palace and puts herself in a place where the king might be able to see her. Because that's how it worked. You didn't have an appointment, so you would kind of go and you'd stand in the palace along the corridor where he might be able to catch you. You know, you'd get his eyesight. And she's there standing, hoping that he's in a good mood. Because if he's in a bad mood, it could mean that she could lose her head. And it makes me wonder if they had little signals, like some couples do. I'm sure a lot of you, you have signals, or you have certain looks. My wife has certain looks, where sometimes if she looks at me with this certain look, I know that she's upset with me, that I'm in trouble, right? Other times she might look at me, and it's a sense of like, oh, she's so happy, she loves me so much, you know, I like that look. Um, I remember... uh, when we were first married, <clears throat> my wife had this little signal when we would be out somewhere and, and uh, with a, another couple or something having dinner. And this one particular night, she reaches under the table and she kind of just taps me on the leg. You know, she kind of does this. And at first I thought she was like getting frisky. You know, I thought she was like <laughs> trying to tell me like, hey, let's get out of here, you know. And, and, uh, but I found out later that actually... What she was doing, and she does this now all the time, is she, she knew. See, my problem is never that I don't talk enough. It's that I talk too much. And she knew that I was going to say something that I was going to regret. So she does that to me all the time now. I'll get this little tap like, don't say, I know what you're thinking. Don't say it, you know. 
Or it might be a signal that she's saying, you know, hey, I'm kind of tired and, you know, can we go home now? But, but, you know, we have those little signals. I wonder. I wonder if Esther and the king had their little signals. I wonder if she came and just kind of gave a little wave or was playing with her hair. Whatever she did, it worked because he summoned her into his presence. And we pick it up in verse 3. It says, and the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half of the kingdom. Now, that was just a figure of speech. It was like him saying, look, ask whatever you want, I'll give it to you. So Esther answered, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for them. Now this is interesting to me, that she doesn't just say, I want you to kill Haman, or can you reverse this decree that has been put forth? Can you do something to change that where all the Jews are going to die? But she doesn't do that. Esther's wise, and she realizes that there is a sense of timing that's involved here. Maybe, maybe all the Lord gave her, the only instruction he gave her was, have a banquet, invite those two to come. Because that's sometimes the way the Lord works in our lives, isn't it? He doesn't give us the whole plan all at once. He doesn't give us, you know, here's point A, there's point Z, run. No, he gives us one step at a time. Whatever it was, we're not sure, she says, can you come to this banquet today, and you and Haman, and verse 5 says, then the king said, bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared, and at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half of my kingdom, it shall be done. And then Esther answered and said, my petition and request is this, if I have found favor in your sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. In other words, can you come to another banquet tomorrow and then I'll tell you my request and what's on my mind. Now why does she delay here? What's the reason in her delay? Commentators have mixed opinions on this. Some think that Esther sort of lost her confidence here, and so that's the reason for her delay. Others think that she was just being patient. Others believe that God was directing Esther, and this was all a part of God's plan, a part of his providence and his sovereignty. And I love the insight that one of my favorite Bible commentators, Warren Wiersbe, has on this. Wiersbe said this, at the banquet we see three evidences of the sovereignty of God in action. First, the Lord restrained Esther from telling Ahasuerus, the king, the truth about Haman. While there may have been fear in her heart, the Lord was working in her life and directing what she said, even though she wasn't even aware of it. You see, a lot's going to happen in those 24 hours. And so God was delaying the great exposure until, as we'll see in a minute, Mordecai is going to get honored. He also said this, we also see the sovereign hand of God at work in the way that the king accepted the delay and agreed to come to a second banquet. And he pointed out that monarchs like Ahasuerus aren't accustomed to being told to wait. But he's like, okay, I'll wait for tomorrow. 
And I love what we're told in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And that's what's happening here. God's moving. God's working. The king doesn't even realize it. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1, it says, To man belong the plans of his heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of his tongue. Whatever the king's plans were for the next evening, he would postpone them and make time for the queen's second feast because God was working in the situation. Proverbs 19 verse 21 says this, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Wearsby said a third evidence of God's sovereignty is that although Esther's attendants knew that she was Jewish, none of them conveyed this important information to Haman. And just think about it, if they did. If they would have told him, hey, you know your decree, the king, the, the queen, she's of Jewish nationality, and no doubt Haman would have immediately devised some type of, type of plan to prevent her from interfering. Well, we see God's These are good insights that Wiersbe makes, that God's working here. His providence, his sovereignty is at work. But I want you to consider Haman for a minute. What is he thinking? In the midst of all of this, I mean, this is no doubt stroking his ego that he has this personal lunch with the king and queen on one day and he's invited to come back a second day and we see that's exactly what he's thinking. He's thinking like, wow, this is amazing. I'm so important. We'll pick it up in verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeres. And then Haman told them of the great riches and the multitude of his children and everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above all the officials of the servants of the king. So in other words, this is a Persian bragfest. He invites his friends and his, his family, and he goes, I want to tell you how great I am. I want to tell you of how great my wealth is. I want to tell you of all my kids. In chapter 9, verse 10, it records that he had 10 children. And in that culture, they believed that that was a sign of somebody's masculinity, that they were very, very fertile, that he fathered these 10 children. And then in verse 12, it says, moreover, and I'm sure they're all thinking, okay, there's more? <laughs> you know, great, you know. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared tomorrow, and I am again invited by her along with the king. He's like, I had lunch today with the king and queen, and I'm coming back tomorrow for this private banquet. Aren't I so amazing? And everybody's probably going, wow. But then those verse 13. It says, yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. How pathetic is this? Haman has everything that you could ever want. Power, prestige, wealth, this great position. But there is this one Jewish man who will not bow to him and pay him the respect that he thinks he deserves. And he's miserable because of it. How sad. Here's something that I've noticed. People who understand grace, 
People who understand that they have received from God way more than they deserve are people who are full of gratitude. They're people who are full of great joy. And those type of people are not really bothered by little things. However, people who are full of themselves are usually not very thankful for what they have and they're always wanting more and somehow they think that they deserve more and those type of people can be bothered by the littlest things because they're always focused on what they don't have. That's Haman. His joy is being robbed by this one Jewish man, Mordecai, who is not giving him the respect and the honor that he thinks he deserves. I notice verse 14. Then his wife, Zeres, and all his friends said to him, she's like, look, honey, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. Now that's 75 feet. We're talking like seven stories, all right? And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it and then go merrily with the king to the banquets. And it says, and the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. He's like, honey, that's why I love you. You're Mike. I like the way you think, honey. Great idea. Now, you need to understand, the Persians... When you think of the gallows, don't, don't think of like a, a Western where they, you know, have the hang, hangman's gallows, you know, that, you know, the bottom goes out and the person's hanging. The, the, the gallows, they, they didn't hang them with ropes, they impaled them. It was like impaling somebody to a wall. That's what it was like. And she's, she's like, let's build these gallows right here in our front yard so that every day you can wake up, see Mordecai, you know, hang in there impaled on that wall and then go on your merry way. And he's like, I like that plan. And that's how Act 1 ends. We come to chapter 6 in Act 2, and we'll call this divine insomnia. I love how this story unfolds. That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles that they were read before the king. Now we're going to see the hand of God as at work. We're going to see the king being surprised here, God working. And I want you to think about this. He can't sleep. He could have asked for wine. He could have asked for one of his many concubines to come and spend some time with him. He could have asked for musicians to come and play some music, some lullabies, but he doesn't do that. What does he ask for? He asks for a history book. And I kind of understand that. I don't know about you, but I hated history when I was in school. I love it now because I realize that history is really his. It's God's story. But he asked for a history book to be brought, and the Persians were meticulous about how they kept records. Verse 2 says, And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Remember this. This is when, back in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, we saw that Mordecai thwarted this assassination plot against the king. And so they wrote this down, and the king's reading about this now. But I want you to notice, five years. Five years have passed 
from the time that Mordecai saved the king. And there's been a lot of things that have been written in these books. And the king just so happens, coincidence, right, to read this particular story. This is another example of the providence of God. God working, and the entire Jewish history would hinge upon that story that was recorded in the Persian Chronicles. Verse 3 says, Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended to him says, Nothing has been done for him. Now this was very, very unusual. Because the Persians made a practice of publicly elevating and recognizing those who had shown their loyalty toward the king. It was kind of their way of saying, hey, loyalty will be rewarded in this kingdom. But for some reason, what Mordecai did was overlooked. And again, this was of divine order. Because it wasn't time. It wasn't time back then, five years before, for Mordecai to be elevated and rewarded then and then forgotten. No, it was to be brought up at this particular time. And I wonder if Mordecai thought, here I saved the king's life, and he does nothing for me. And then on top of that, we read in chapter 3, the very next thing that happens is he promotes this buffoon, Haman. And I wonder if Mordecai thought, you know, life is just not fair. Maybe you felt that way before. Maybe you felt like, you know, no one sees what I'm doing. No one understands my heart. No one, I never get that pat on the back. Listen, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says this, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God always sees. Back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, it says, what is done in secret will be rewarded openly, and that's exactly what's going to happen here to Mordecai. So the servants say nothing was done for him, and the king ends up pondering this the rest of the night. Now morning comes, and we pick it up in verse 4, and the king says, Who, who's in the court? Who's here? I've been thinking about this, and, and I want to I bounce something off. Who, who's here? Who, who, one of my advisors is here. And it says, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Another coincidence, right? Haman just happens to be the guy that shows up. He's there early to ask permission of the king that he might let him impale Mordecai on the gallows. But Haman is in for a big surprise. Verse 5 says, And the king's servant said to him, Haman is there. Remember, Haman's the prime minister. He's like second in command. Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to, to honor more than me, right? He's thinking, this is great. The king wants to honor me. I'm going to ask him if I can hang Mordecai, and then he's going to honor me. Life doesn't get any better than this. Verse 7, and Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn. 
and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. And then let his robe and his horse be delivered to the hand of, the, of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor, and then parade him on, on horseback through, through the city square, and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Rank was recognized in a Persian empire by the robe that was worn. And what better way, Haman's thinking, to honor somebody than to put the king's very robe on him? To let him ride on the king's very horse with the king's crest put upon him. And it's interesting that everything Haman mentions here has to do with status, how a person is seen in the eyes of others. Haman thinks that this is happening to him. And this shows us his heart. This guy is all about status. And that's really the the heart of the the flesh. You know, we, we love to be seen and praised by men. Haman doesn't say, you know, a great way to honor him would be he never has to pay taxes the rest of his life. A great way to honor him would be, you know, to take care of his family forever. No, Haman says, dress him up like the king and parade him around the city on his royal horse. And this will let everyone know that this is someone that the king holds in high esteem. It was all about being seen by men. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, great idea. Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai, the Jew. (laughs) And right then and there, the bomb just drops, right? Bursting Haman's big-headed bubble. Do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Can you imagine the look on his face? Haman probably turned as white as a ghost at this moment. Verse 11 says, So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai. This is like comical. I just love this. Haman goes to this guy who would never bow before him, wouldn't stand in attention and honor him, and he has him stand up so that he can array him in this way. And I read this and I think, doesn't God have a, don't don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. This is amazing. I love what Chuck Swindoll had to say about this particular part of the story. He says, never once in all of Haman's peacock strutting and evil plotting had God ignored him or his plan to murder Mordecai and the Jews. God had not missed his statements, the pride of his heart, the violent prejudicial motives behind his decisions. God was invisible, but he was not out of touch or passive. He had not forgotten his people or his promises to them and to their enemies. God was working. Verse 11 says, So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai, and Haman led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor. I'm sure he was very monotone, right? He's like whispering, Thus shall be done. Here's this guy. 
And he's thinking, I hate this. I can't believe this. It was Max Lucado who said this. Who saw this coming? Who could have envisioned such a hairpin U-turn? The answer, God could. God orchestrated all the details, the sleepless king, the detailed reading, the entry about Mordecai in the book, the entrance of Haman in the castle court. Who could do this but the blessed controller of all things? And then he adds this, God makes everything work out according to his plan. That's God. But I want you to notice verse 12. I find this fascinating. It says, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gates. I want you to notice that. It's a simple line that's easy to pass over. Here Mordecai is exalted and honored, and he just returns back to his position. And I love this about this guy. He's not looking for a promotion. There's no sense of entitlement, nothing like that at all. He just humbly goes back to his normal spot. And I find that awesome. But not Haman. It says, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. He's thinking, this day did not turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out. When Haman told his wife's arrest and all his friends what had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zerah said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you be, have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. It's like... They basically, translation, this isn't going to end well for you, buddy. And I'm sure he's thinking like, thanks, honey. (laughs) Much different tone than you were telling me this morning. uh, Build the gallows and hang the guy. Verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet with Esther that she had prepared. No doubt Haman has lost his appetite. But this brings us to chapter 7 in Act 3 that we'll call Divine Justice. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And at this point, neither of them has any idea that she is of Jewish descent. And it says, On the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request up to half of the kingdom? It shall be done. He's probably curious by now, like, what, what, what are you, why do you want us to come together? Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female servants, I I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. She's basically saying, look, if we would have just been sold, I wouldn't have said a word, but I'll tell you this, you have no idea what you're losing because we as a people are very, very loyal. So the king Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare to presume in his heart to do such a thing? Now he knows. He signed off on the thing. But he's playing dumb here. And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. 
And suddenly in this moment, Haman and the king connect the dots and they realize that Esther is Jewish and because of that, she is in danger of being annihilated. And I remind you of this. Once a king wrote something into law, it could not be reversed. And we're going to see how this plays out next week in chapter 8. But he couldn't just say, oh, I'm going to change my mind. But he realizes he's got a problem here. And so it says in the latter part of verse 6, So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. And when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. They didn't dine at tables like, like we do. They dined on these couches. And so the king comes in and, and there's you know uh, Haman pleading for his life and he's like laying across the couch very close to the queen. And he comes in and the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in my house? And here the king is given away to take care of Haman. He's like, are you trying to assault my wife right now? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And now now Harbana, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Really? Hang him on them. (laughs) And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the king's wrath subsided. Don't you just love the Bible? I mean, this is an amazing story. I want us to look at the first two verses of chapter 8, though, as we wrap this up, because we see the tables are turned. It says, verse 1, On that day King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Now, that little insight means that what Haman did was considered to be a criminal act. Because in the Persian law, their their normal policy was the house and the belongings would go to the family in an event like this. Unless the person was a criminal, then their possessions would go to the state. So his house and all his belongings, they, they go to Esther because he assaulted. This was the word that went out, the queen. This house, no doubt, was a palace since Haman was second in command and had great riches. And notice it says, and Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told how he was related to her. And so the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Mordecai, talk about being surprised by God. He becomes the prime minister. He becomes second in command. This story is full of surprises. The king is surprised that his queen is Jewish and his prime minister had almost had her killed. The prime minister Haman is surprised because everything in his life gets flipped on its head in a 24-hour period of time. Esther is surprised because she becomes the instrument of God to save Mordecai and eventually her people as well. Mordecai is surprised because he goes from being lowly servant to second in command overnight. 
And you know what? God loves to surprise his people. When we stop going through the motions, he loves to surprise us. When we trust him and we just seek to follow him and to step out in faith and allow him to lead us, he loves to surprise us. And I think even this week, church, God wants to do something in your life to surprise you. To just blow your mind of his love and his presence. But do you know what the biggest surprise is? That he saved us. That's the biggest surprise. And as we close our time today, and we're going to head toward partaking of communion together, I want you to consider our mediator. Paul the Apostle wrote these words in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. And in our story, Esther is a type of Christ. She plays the role of the mediator. Her people, the Jews, are under the judgment of this man, Haman. And Esther is the only one who can mediate because she is a Jew and she is, has access to the throne. And we've seen in this story how Esther risked her life to intercede on behalf of her people, but she remained the queen. She could have died, but she didn't. And God used Esther to save her people, the Jews, from being annihilated in Persia. But let's consider the mediation of our Savior Jesus. Mankind was under a greater judgment, the judgment of God because of our sin. We were damned in doom because of our rebellion against God. And Jesus left the throne. He leaves heaven and he comes to this earth to become one of us that he might be our mediator. And he didn't just risk death. He did die. A brutal death upon the cross where he paid the price for our sins. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin literally became sin for us. And he wasn't just the mediator, but he became, 1 John says, the propitiation of our sins. That word propitiation means that he literally became the satisfaction. Punishment needed to be rendered because of the sins, because of our sin. And Jesus came and satisfied the judgment of God and paying the price for our sins. And now Jesus mediates as our advocate. That means our defense attorney, that when the the Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren and he comes and and he accuses us before God. He says, look what Rob did today. And, And Jesus is there to advocate for us and say, you know what? That's right. As our defense attorney, that's right. He did that. And we're thinking like, I need a new attorney. You know, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, you did that, but the price has been paid. I paid the price for those sins, for those wrongs. And because of that, the father, the judge, says case dismissed. And our sins are not just forgiven, but they're forgotten. Put as far as the east is from the west. Esther was a great mediator for her people, but Jesus is a better one for us. Because he continues. Esther died. She ends up dying. And her mediation work ceased at that moment. But Jesus rose and he lives and he continues to mediate on our behalf as our intercessor. 
as he prays for us, as our defense attorney. And so today, as we close our time together, I'm going to have the band come out right now. And as we close our time together, I want to just encourage you as we partake of communion, something that we have done thousands of times, some of us. Let's not just go through the motions. But may our hearts today have a new sense of joy and gratefulness and gratitude toward the grace that God has bestowed upon us. You should have received one of these little packets on your way in today. If you didn't, they're out on the table. You can grab one right now. But we're going to sing a song. And just right now, as we partake of this, I want to encourage you to partake. As you feel ready, this little wafer on the top represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you. That took the punishment that you deserve. The juice represents his blood. That The Bible says that though our sins were many, when the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to them, they become as white as snow, forgiven, forgotten, cleansed. But the Bible does say this. It warns about partaking of communion in what's called an unworthy manner. What does that mean? It means I know everything that Jesus did for me, that he went to the cross to pay the price for my sins, that he's the only way upon which a person can be saved. But I'm not ready to turn from my sin. I'm not ready to to follow him. I'm not ready to give my heart to him. To partake of this would be to partake of it in an unworthy manner. It's like, I know what your cross meant, but I'm not ready. The Bible says don't partake. But the other option would be this. Give your heart to Jesus today. Tell Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I'm so thankful for what you did for me. That you made a way that I could be in a right relationship with God. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to mediate for us, to be our sacrifice. We thank you that Jesus is an amazing mediator, incredible Savior, that we have complete salvation. Our sins forgiven and our destiny, our hope reserved because Jesus died and rose again. And so today, Lord, we partake of communion with a sense of gratitude and appreciation for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name.